about 85% of the impact protection of, of any given helmet is provided by that styrofoam layer in there, and it's, it's also one of the cheapest um, parts of the helmet. Hey, you're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and you'll get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Folks, wherever you are in the world today, you are listening to episode 23. So welcome back if you're an old hand. And if you're joining us for the first time today, then a big welcome to you. And especially if you're listening in from HIA's Heli Expo 2015 in Orlando. As we go to air, several of the professional courses there have already started. And the main exhibition booths open up there on Tuesday. I'm not going to get to this one. Sadly, but maybe in future years I will, and it would be awesome to catch up and hang out with some of you at one of these events. So we'll come back to Heli Expo shortly. As the title says, this episode is all about helicopter aircrew helmets. Should you get one? What should you look for in a helmet? Fitting advice, and how to take care of your helmet so it lasts. That's some of the things we cover coming up. And take us up through everything you want to know about helicopter aircrew helmets. We're joined today by Mark Jones of Gentex Aircrew Systems. Mark is a senior product specialist at Gentex. He's been with the company for 12 years. And before that, he spent 30 years in the US Air Force as an aircrew life support equipment tech. As part of his roles, he served on accident investigation boards, works with customers to develop helmet specs, and advises on new product development at Gentex. What all that means is that you're going to get to hear from someone who really knows your stuff when it comes to protecting your noggin in a helicopter. So we'll hear from Mark very shortly. Back on Heli Expo 2015, if you're there now heading to Orlando in the next few days, then please do send through some photos on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash rotary wing show. And I'll share those around the community. Two of our past guests are speaking at the expo. So we've got Sean Coyle will be talking on helicopter aerodyne, and Robert Feast will be talking uh, about the flying in the in the wire and obstacle environment. Gordy Cox, who spoke on firefighting, will also be floating around. And Gordy, look, I apologize if I get this wrong, but I think you're hanging out at the Rotocraft Support Inc. booth. At uh, and I don't know how they use these booths, but it's three thousand and fifteen. Or if they talk about it as a 30, uh, 15. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> Gordy will be hanging out there. So go say good day. If you get to meet these guys, please say hello. And uh, look, thank them if you got something from their interviews. And again, send photos in. Mark, who you'll hear from, is obviously from Gentex. And if you want to follow up on any of the info that you're about to hear, then the crew tell me that they'll have technical reps and executives floating around the expo too. So best chance to track them down is at... Capewell Aerial Systems at booth uh, 4072, uh, Gibson and Barnes at booth uh, 2412, and uh, Trans Aero booth, which is uh, 1034, uh, or 1034, depending on which way that they, they number those. So incidentally, I've loosely arranged a future episode with 
uh, Gibson and Barnes about uh, flight suits and fire protection too. So a bit of a tie in there. And keep an eye, or I should say an ear out, for that episode later in the year. While we're talking events, I want to let you know that World Helicopter Day is well and truly up and running. So the website is up at worldhelicopterday.com and there are Twitter and Facebook accounts that go along with that. There are three, if not four, events already listed on the website for the 16th of August, 2015. So that'll be the first one. The one in Queensland, Australia, North Island, New Zealand, New York State, and the Helicopter Museum in the UK so far. In the near future, there'll be a a press release template that you can download for your company or your organization, and an open day planners checklist to make things super easy. In a nutshell, the concept is for your company to hold an open day on World Helicopter Day, which is 16th of August in 2015, and to use the International Day to drive local media coverage so you can get people out to your hangar or to your venue and to look at your helicopters. In turn, you then get a chance to you know, convert this to new business or donations, depending on the type of operation that you run. Plus, it's going to be a lot of fun. You can throw in a barbecue and have uh, you know invite people along and, and do all kinds of activities. And it's a chance to celebrate the work we do and also the machines that we fly. It's open to anyone who wants to be involved. If you submit your open day details on the website, I can add you to the international list of events there as well. All the info for that is over at worldhelicopterday.com. Okay, enough of all that. Let's jump into the meat of this episode and get the lowdown on helicopter aircrew helmets with Mark Jones. Mark Jones from Gentex, thank you very much for being able to join us today and share a little bit about uh, helmets. Glad to be here, Mick. Glad to help you out. Awesome, Mark. And look, I did some mathematics here in your bio, and it looks like you've spent about 42 years working on life support equipment and helmets. So you'd be forgiven if you never wanted to see another helmet again in your life. <laughs> true. That, yeah, that is true. I, I don't really think of them much in my off time. <laughs> <laughs> Just quickly, your background. So US Air Force, and you know, when you look at the aircraft types you had listed on the bio, it's almost every kind of fast jet that's been in the US inventory in the last uh, as we said, about 40 years. Can you just give a, folks listening just a, a quick idea of you know your background in, in defense and then with Gentex? Oh, certainly, certainly. As, as I said, uh, I did about 30 years in the U.S. Air Force, uh, worked on uh, primarily uh, fighters, uh, single and uh, dual-seat uh, fighter aircraft for the first 20 years. Had a couple spells working uh, trainer aircraft uh, for the Air Force as well, and then uh, moved into the special operations, which... Uh, uh, gave me my start in rotary wing um, applications. Uh, there I worked with gunships, um, helicopter gunships as well, fixed wing, and retired out of the uh, Air Force Special Operations community in uh, early 2000s. Um, came up to Gentex and been here about a dozen years, and I've been a product manager for um, all flight helmets uh, for Gentex since that time. And uh, my role at Gentex is a uh, Basically, we try to handle cradle-to-grave management of the helmet systems. So uh, everything from, you know, I've got an idea for a new helmet uh, design or type, um, get it implemented with uh, research and development, uh, drawing initial prototypes produced, um, put it into production, support production through the life of the helmet, and then uh, its eventual retirement and replacement. 
So that would be a cradle-to-grave uh, management of the product. Excellent. All right, we'll touch on a few of those things as we go through. Before we leave the sure. just your, your military background, just to ask about the uh, the F one seventeen. Were you involved in that fairly early on? Like, it's such a unique aircraft. I was just wondering what you where you first saw it and what your initial impressions were. I first worked that. I thought that was I thought that was a fantastic aircraft. I first worked that in uh, way back when it was a uh, top secret uh, operation worked out in the. Um, the range area of Nevada, I'll leave it uh, at, at those words, uh, back in the early 1981 time frame. And uh, it, it was fascinating aircraft, a great capability. Did they do a big un- unveil type thing? Did you walk into the hangar and there it was, sitting in the middle of the hangar, or how did you first see it? You must have been looking over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, the first time I was introduced to it, uh, obviously after security clearances and everything, I happened to uh, go out one evening with uh, my uh, my coworker, and he said, "Well, now you're finally going to get a chance to see it." And you know, of course, you walk around a corner, and this thing is—they're uh, actually painted light gray, and it because uh, it was one of the initial uh, prototypes. And there's a huge American flag hanging behind it. Of course, all the lights in the hangar are on at night because uh, we only operated at night in the first uh, five or six years of operating that aircraft. So it was uh, very impressive to see a giant flag uh, lit up uh, with this F-1, F-117 sitting in front of it. Yeah, excellent. No, it's just one of those things that intrigues me. It's such a, a different aircraft, um, I mean, you know, seeing something like for the first time. But, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Okay, you spoke about a bit of your role there at uh, Gentex, and I guess there is no average day, but, you know, in a week-to-week sort of scenario, what sort of things would you tackle um, in a week? In a week, um, I'm also uh, the senior technical specialist here for the flight helmets now, so um, I I devote a substantial amount of time to assisting customers with issues on both fixed-wing and rotary-wing helmets, answering, you know, technical inquiries, will this go with that, et cetera, and there's actually quite an amount of, uh, of time spent on that. In the liaison with marketing side of the house, marketing and business development with our engineering, and also with our production folks, and that. So that um, you know, as as customers and distributors place orders with us, we want to ensure that they get flowed out properly. Maybe the, the customer wants changes to his helmets from a standard configuration. So I would I would work with engineering to see the drawings are changed, etc. These kind of things are what I do on a day to day basis. All right, Mark. If we talk about helmets really generally, and you know, obviously the aviation, or I should say, the helicopter community goes everything from you know students on an R22 all the way through to your offshore rigs and, and the military scenarios. So it's, it's a huge range. But what's the case for for helmets and helicopters? You know, why why have one? What's the what's the role of a helmet? Why have one? Huh. Well, first I'll start. I'm a, I'm a long-time motorcycle rider as well, and so I know the benefits of a, of a helmet just from my personal perspective, and and I always wear one even though it's not required uh, where I'm at. Um, it just it will just it's proven it will prevent head injuries, and there's very strong statistics that are backed up by many years of research um, about the, for the effectiveness of, of wearing a flight helmet. It's, it's just like race cars, uh, you know, Formula One and motorcycle racing. Um, they demonstrate their value. Um, probably the leader in this area is, um, uh, for research in this is probably the U.S. Army uh, Aeromedical Research Lab down at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And they've thoroughly studied mishap reports for probably four and a half decades 
um, and the results in that, and, and these things drive evolutionary changes to their helmets, um, and occasionally, you know, the a new helmet design and new materials entirely. So th there is you know, uh, a, definitely a wealth of information that supports the effectiveness of wearing a helmet, especially in a mishap. And a mishap doesn't even have to be a major one. Um, taking a you know a fair-sized bird strike at 110 knots can can definitely cause serious injury and damage. Um, and, and that's sometimes something that you know most crews, both fixed and rotoring, don't 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 consider. You know, is a, you know other things that may uh, get in the way besides just a very hard landing. Yeah, and it's really interesting different cultures as well because in the military, uh, like it going flying without a helmet, it was just you'd feel it totally naked and it's just like a, it's just like never ever happened and uh, I remember yeah. first jumping in an R22 and just having that the, you know David Clark headset on and and flying with that it it felt you know really uncomfortable and awkward but uh, you know a couple of years later down in, in the civilian training scenario I'm you know I'm not wearing a helmet at the moment and uh, it's again you sort of get used to that sort of environment where, you, where you're working in and out of so I'm not sure where I was going with that, but yeah, it's just yeah, different places. You feel naked about it. Yeah, uh, but I, I yeah. guess it's like the you know the, the boiling frog. Now it, I, I don't notice it so much when I'm not wearing it, but um, yeah. Yeah, good analogy for the boiling frog. <laughs> yeah, you sort of yeah when you're when you're there, with, you know the fish doesn't know it's it's, it's uh, drinking water type thing. With with Gentex, yeah. the company, what's the the background of Gentex and, and helmets? Where's where's that uh, originate oh, sure, from? Sure, sure, sure. Well, um, it, it seems odd, but uh, the company actually got its start as a silk-throwing uh, business uh, back about 1895. At the time, they produced um, silk for the, the major markets here in the United States, uh, the New York, Boston, uh, Washington, D.C. area, for uh, primarily for women's fashions. Um, but it was actually quite a large business um, in, the, in the northeastern United States at that time. Um, so materials have been... Uh, probably the, the cornerstone of the foundation since uh, the late 19th century. Uh, in World War One, we produced a lot of kit, um, the gear uh, for soldiers to wear for trench warfare. And after World War One, the company moved into synthetic materials, uh, you know, into the 1930s. When World War II came around, um, Gentex, uh, was, uh, Gen, uh, General Textiles is what it originally had been called, uh, we produced parachutes, uh, packs, and harnesses. Um, and interestingly enough, the the initial parachutes, um, I'm sorry, the initial helmets that we produced were derived from our parachute business. For parachutes, you have to put them into special containers and packaging um, because they can be very prone to snagging. And so the containers have to be very, very smooth, especially you know if it's something like a fiberglass. So um, our parachute containers actually led to the development of the first fiberglass helmets. Uh, so about 1950, we started fielding really the early 1950s the, the first large numbers of jets, and of course jet aircraft much higher performance than you know the piston engine uh, aircraft that had primarily been in use uh, during World War II. Of course, that drove a need then for greater protection and and as well the addition of oxygen. Uh, granted, that's your your wing or your uh, your audience is primarily interested in rotary wing. Um, rotary folks were a little slower to adopt the use of the helmets. I mean, um, it was primarily headsets and sunglasses um, 
until about the 1960s time frame. And that's where um, when U.S. involvement in Vietnam uh, came a, a vastly increased role of, of helicopters. Although they had been around even into early World War II, their role had mostly been focused on, on rescue. Uh, you know, and, and you know, I hate to say it, but it's kind of almost an oddity to see a to, to see a helicopter prior to 1960. Yeah. With the massive in in Vietnam, the role of the helicopter went full spectrum. I mean, now instead of just doing rescue uh, of, of people or something like that, it suddenly became attack reconnaissance. They did medevac. They did resupply, troop movement, you name it. And so the, the like I say, the, the role of helicopters greatly expanded in the 1960s, and that drove then the, the, the use of helmets uh, by the U.S. military as a start. And Genentex was supplying helmets uh, during that period? Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. We've, we've started producing our first helmets uh, for the fixed-wing uh, pilots, Navy, and uh, Air Force in about 1951. I mean, yeah. it was about a dozen years later when they started becoming widespread on helicopters. And I, and I see the, the role of helos is, uh, or rotor ring is going to continue to greatly expand simply due to their, their flexibility. Um, I mean, it gets to places where um, fixed wing can never go. I mean, when you look at um, major world events like, like the Fukushima uh, disaster, I mean, they had to use helicopters to get in there to help contain the reactors. When it comes to riot or crowd control, when it comes to rescue, there's there's areas and times when nothing will do but a helicopter. Yep, and that's uh, yeah. We're in this industry, we're definitely passionate about our machines and and what they can do. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so I I see it. I see it growing. Um, the field growing uh, in in the next ten years easily. Uh, I, there just will be more demand for point application. And, and that's exactly what a what a rotary wing will give you. Just on that with Gentex, with the, the business, you know, of the helmets you guys make, what's the breakdown between fast jets and and helicopters? Um, quantities in, in in any given year. Oh, more percentages, I guess. Uh, let me see quantities. Um, it's probably about uh, right now, probably sixty-five, thirty-five. Uh, 65 um, fixed wing, 35 rotary, somewhere right there. It might, um, yeah, I take that back. It's, it's probably closer to 60, 40, I would guess. Okay, no, that's just interesting. Yeah, fixed wing for the 60%. We touched on the, you know, obviously helmets are there for, for head protection. What are a couple, of, and we'll come back to the construction and uh, I guess sure. testing and things like that. What are some of the other sort of main f- functions that, that uh, helmets do in the cockpit? Well, the use of the helmet in either fixed or rotary wing, its original purpose was simply to attach um, communications and, and then a little bit later oxygen to a pilot, a pilot, whether it's a pilot of a fixed wing or rotary wing. And then later it's greatly expanded its uh, capabilities. So, um, you know, the, some of the key areas there would, would be um, head protection. Its purpose there is to reduce or, or limit the G-forces. And this is very important for for uh, rotary and crews. It's uh, to reduce the, the g forces imparted to the to the head to your brain. And in this case, the lower the the, the number of g's, the better. Many many rotary helmets that are out there on the market, they'll protect uh, um, provide protection in about the 250 to 400 g range, and that's pretty good. It's 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 quite survivable. 
but they're probably concussion and it's entirely likely that you know person sustaining you know 250 or 300 g blows to the head would probably be unconscious and that's okay as as long as the aircraft isn't in the water or on fire um you're you're probably okay uh, now our top of the line helmet right now is the h256 and that limits impact forces to the head to about 175 g's so that's you know, a substantial increase over uh, some of the other models that are out there. And, and that's the direction you want to go. And, and I eventually see us getting down into maybe the 125G range, which would be a very safe helmet, and it'll help ensure that you don't become unconscious in the event of a water ditching or fire or something like that. Okay. What about um, the uh, – is noise attenuation, you know, is that something you sort of focus on in the in the helmet design? We do as well, yes. Um, and as you're probably aware, um, rotary ring tend to have um, a, a lot of low to mid-range noise, uh, especially in, say, the 125 to 1500 hertz range. Obviously, from, from gears and turbines, uh, blades, the wind howl even. And so that's kind of where you want to focus as opposed to something that might be um, like a, a jet engine, which would be on the upper frequencies of three and 4,000 hertz. So, um, so you want a helmet that's got decent um, uh, noise attenuation properties. Um, some of that is provided by the construction or the design of the shell, of how they um, they mitigate the noise. Um, but primarily, it comes from uh, the materials and used in the ear cups and the design and the volume of the ear cups themselves. That's how you would get probably the best noise attenuation. And of course, accessories that could be added. When I'm talking about ear cups, that's passive attenuation. There are active systems as well we can we can touch on that later um that also will reduce the amount of noise yeah okay because well, yeah i haven't used any of the active systems yet i've, I, I've actually just in a, in a classroom had the uh, bose headsets with the on and off and it's quite a big difference but they're sweet yeah yeah <laughs> okay if we talk about construction and materials then if, if you can you break down like the basic anatomy you know you know hard outer, outer shell foam you know and, and sort of just sure. you know a walkthrough Sure, not a problem. Now, the, the early helmet shells um, were quite heavy. They used cloth and leather liners, and they were almost entirely fiberglass, which tends to be quite heavy. And much of their design was kind of based on auto racing helmets at the time. And as I, as I said earlier, when you start getting more jets, uh, you add ejection seats and higher higher speeds and altitudes, the design of the helmet changed and became more aerodynamic for both fixed and rotary wing applications. And then retaining the helmet on the head in the event of, of any kind of a mishap, that became critical. The rotary wing, that those, those developments came a little bit later than the fixed wing, but you know, bottom line is the early helmets were quite heavy and not very stable on your head. So we've evolved now to using other materials that are a lot lighter, uh, a lot stronger. And so um, primarily the materials that Gentex uses and, and Hissel Helmet Integrated Systems Limited are materials like Kevlar, Para-Aramid, we use ballistic nylons, and we also use Spectra, which is a... Uh, Another brand name, Spectre, is a very strong, has a very high tensile strength, but it's also very lightweight synthetic material. And these are probably the primary materials we make our rotary wing helmets out of. If you're familiar with the way plywood is constructed, you've got interlocking layers, one laid on top of the other, crisscrossing, and that's what gives plywood its strength. And it's kind of the same 
concept for flight helmets. Um, our helmets are not injection molded. What you do is you, you have a head mold back there and the materials are laid up wet on it layer after layer crisscrossing. Um, and that's how you get the, the strength of a helmet shell. Are they handmade or is that a, a mechanical oh, process? They are. Nope, they are all hand done. Okay. Tends, tends to be it's very labor intensive um, and more time consuming. Obviously, you can, you can punch out a lot of injection molded helmets in, in a day, but it takes a little, you know, substantially longer to do these hand laid up helmets. Um, and, it, and but the end result is you get a very um, strong helmet shell. It's got a lot of penetration resistance because. You know, when things go south in a helicopter, uh, everything wants to stab at you, you know, and try to puncture, puncture holes in the helmet. So you want a, a helmet with a lot of puncture resistance and as well a lot of tear or shredding resistance so it doesn't get torn apart. A lot of flying gears and turbines when, when things go wrong. So uh, these became very rigid shells, and we usually pair those with a, like a crushable ear cup. And that way, you know, on the odd, the off chance that there is a rollover and the helmet does become compressed, you know, the shell will resist the compression. And if it does get to that point, then the crushable ear cups will help uh, prevent, you know, the, the forces from being transmitted to the side of the skull. Okay, so when you're talking about the crushable uh, ear cups, you're talking about the where the, the helmet flares down over the ear pieces or down, down the side? Or are you actually talking about the, the ear cups that go around the ears themselves? Well, I'm talking about the ear cups that are crushable are actually inside the helmet. Those are the ones that would surround your ear. Okay. Yeah, and and, and so, you know, if it's something if you're looking uh, to acquire a helmet, you know, that should be a consideration, you know, to try and find a, a, a helmet with a crushable ear cup. Now, the, the yeah, foam... There are hard ones. Project. Sorry, uh, go ahead. That's right. And I was going to say, the, the foam um, section then, can you talk about that? And I don't know, is that sort of the... Were you actually getting the uh, the, the G-force absorption? Yes, it's um, it, it tends to be um, what we call expanded polystyrene. Um, um, just styrofoam is is what most people would call it. And in the helmet, that is probably for impact protection. That's probably the single biggest factor. Typically, when when these helmets are impact tested, we we find in our in our lab that. About 85% of the impact protection of, of any given helmet is provided by that styrofoam layer in there, and it's it's also one of the cheapest um, parts of the helmet. But it does a very good job, and so you want that uh, to be in very good condition. You don't want any holes or nicks or gouges to that. But uh, yeah, between that, the outer shell is, provides the protection against impact, impact and tear. It gives that that kind of resistance, but the styrofoam liner that that's what actually absorbs the g-forces and then of course in, in, underneath that you've then got a comfort liner uh, and i guess in the design considerations it's uh you know as much foam as you possibly can up to a, a practical limit of um to size a practical limit yes 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 um and that that will vary with the helmet design and the materials that are used um greatly um some of our our uh styro liners are you know, as as much as you know, say a half inch thick. Um, some of them are nine tenths of an inch thick. So you're talking, you know, twenty twenty two millimeters versus you know twelve. Okay. So big difference in depending on what you're trying to achieve. 
Well, the biggest difference I found going from the uh, Alpha Helmet, which I originally had, and then to the 56, was that the liner where you basically had to you know, sit there with a heat mould to try and get it to shape to whatever warped individual head you had. Uh, is that the oh, okay. is that the kind of process there? Is that that last layer is designed for last little bit of sort of comfort, or it was like a uh, I guess a black material within like a bubbly like a plastic bubble wrapper? Uh, yes, 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 yes. We call that our our TPL stands for the thermoplastic liner. It's been around for twenty some years. Um, the purpose of that, is, as you said, it has becomes the five layers of a looks like a bubble wrap type material with a cloth liner. Um, purpose of that is you can you can heat that into an in an oven for about 10 12 minutes and you pull it out you put it inside the helmet and then you put it on the, the pilot's head and if he has hot spots say in his forehead or the back of the head you would have him put the helmet on with this warmed PPL inside it and then he will hold the helmet down hard against his head in that area and what it does is it flattens out those bubbles on the inside of the liner and it removes or reduces the pressure point that he might be experiencing. Those comfort liners on the inside of the helmet, they provide about another, you know, 10 to 12 percent impact protection. Uh, They are, they are key, but they're, they're not quite as critical as having a a good energy absorbing styrofoam liner inside there. And of course there's, there's other manufacturers of comfort liners out there. Some are, um, strictly comfort foam others are you know bi-level types of foam that are in there but um, most of them i think are all pretty decent and provide about the same amount of uh, protection is it particularly designed things that you know go into a into a helicopter helmet that make it you know it's going to look different to a fixed wing or a your motorbike type helmets Obviously, their purpose is different entirely between fixed and rotor and, and between either of those two and, and a motorcycle um, helmet. For the rotary wing, you want decent protection that is going to extend down well well to the, the point of the jawline on, on an individual. Jet helmets can be trimmed a little bit higher or cut a little bit higher. A jet helmet, you're going to want to be able to rotate your neck completely to be able to check over your shoulder, check six. That's not quite as critically able to do that in a helicopter to check six. Um, usually you're sitting in, you know, you have your engine and turbine directly behind you. But yeah, the, the design of them is a little bit different um, due to their application, but all in all, they all have to cover probably a certain percentage of the head in order to provide the protection. Okay, if we, you know, you're going to go shopping now and we're looking for a helmet, what's, the, what's your advice as far as you know, the criteria to be looking at um, for someone who's listening to this and, you know, who's going to go out next week and, and buy a helmet, what do they need to be thinking of? Hey, um, there's there's um, a, probably a half a dozen key factors to kind of look for on it. Um, I, I'd probably start with a, a good, comfortable fit. If it fits good on your head, it's comfortable. Um, that a lot, that says a lot about the helmet. Is it stable? Um, you don't want to, you know, when you got the chin strap and the nape strap and properly adjusted and that, is it rocking around any? Especially if you're going to have accessories on there like night vision goggles, which are, you know, becoming very widespread, um, even in the commercial world. Um, you want something that's going to be able to support that 1.1 pound up at the front. You don't want to have to wear, if possible, any counterweights on the back of the helmet to, to offset that. So you want something that's a decent, comfortable, stable fit. You want to find one that's got good noise attenuation as well. You know, you, again, we discussed earlier, you want to try to find something in that lower range there, you know, below 
say 1500 hertz 125 to 1500 in there um, find out what the db rating on on those is impact protection rating as well you know if they say it's good you know it's, it limits the, the forces to your head to 400 g's uh, that's fine but if you can find all these features and something that limits it to 250 that's probably the smarter way to go or or less the lower you can get on the, those g-forces the better and a, and a good visor system on the helmet as well. We don't always think about you know the exposure uh, of our eyes to UV rays, but you know it, it definitely accelerates uh, the growth of cataracts. So you want a you know a good visor system that has uh, quality visors inside it. So those are kind of some things I would look for if I were just going out on on the market for you know, trying to locate a good helmet. And all those specs that you're talking about, um, you're just going to get the technical data off the, the website or there's uh, data sheets that they can send you? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, Gentex, Hissel, all the helmet manufacturers, uh, we all have this kind of data on our websites. And certainly, you know, anyone can contact me um, through the website. I'm happy to help them individually if, if necessary with, the, with advice one way or another on these things. If you do, you know, you buy the, the helmet and uh, you've been wearing it for a couple of weeks and things like that, you start to get those sort of hot spots uh, around your head and, it's, you know, they're really distracting and it sort of really accelerates the fatigue. What are some of the things you can do to try and minimize those hot spots? Sure. It would depend on the comfort liner that's inside the helmet. The vast majority of helmets have that styrofoam liner we were discussing earlier. What I would caution here is do not take a ball-peen hammer to that um, EA liner. I mean, I, I've actually seen cases where guys have, uh, cruises said, oh, I've got, I've got a hot spot in my forehead here. So what he's done is he's taken a, a hammer or, or a tool and he's compressed the, e, uh, the styrofoam EA liner, the energy-absorbing liner there in that area to release the pressure. That's a, that is an absolute terrible thing to do because now he's, he's completely destroyed the capability of that liner to, to, to crush in the event there's a mishap. They call them comfort liners for a reason. You want to work on the comfort liner. That's where you'll remove the hot spots. And if and if you can't take it out in the comfort liner, the problem, then you're probably in the wrong size helmet shell. And I would recommend maybe you need to go up to the next larger and then size it down comfortably using the right liner on the inside. Now, hot spots are, could be, you know, if you're using a TPL, there's ways to eliminate it from that. If you're using um, another brand, a Zeta liner, I'll, I'll use for example, um, those come in different thicknesses. You can as well, some of the other liners out there, you can actually you know, trim a little bit here and there or add padding in, in one area or remove it in another that allows you to more of a, a custom fit. And that would help alleviate hot spots. But definitely, definitely don't, don't mess with that white styrofoam liner that's inside there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting actually. It, uh, that's a good tip to take away. Oh, I, I, well, here, I'll give you one, one example. Somebody, uh, you know, when I was in the military, just, uh, this can be on or off record, it doesn't matter to me, but, you know, we, we occasionally, you know, you, you can go out on, on sorties with the crews, whether it's fixed or rotary wing, you know, AC-130s or helicopters, whatever. And I was taking one the next day. Uh, one of my mates in the shop decided to, to, you know, mess with me a little bit. He took a small ball bearing and he put it up inside the comfort liner of my, the helmet that I was going to be wearing that day. Oh, now, now, what a what a <laughs> what a certain person! <laughs> yeah, I wasn't too happy with him by by the time I got done two hours later because uh, fighting around trying to get that damn thing out of their position off to the side, working around anywhere else I could. 
while still trying to, you know, perform as, as part of the crew and assist them best I could. Oh, oh, that had me torqued. Uh, no. We had a laugh later. We had a laugh later about it. <laughs> Have you got any tips for wearing glasses underneath the the helmet? So you know, where you, you basically put your glasses arms underneath the ear caps can, it can get pretty sore on the side of your head there too sometimes. Yeah. So, any tips on that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and and uh, for guys that work on helmets, this is probably the one area that um, we need the most help with. This is one area that uh, um, I say there's not a single cure or fix that works for everyone. Um, the first thing I would suggest is anyone that's flying with with spectacles, whether it's sunglasses or prescription types, try to get the aviator type specs, which has the metal arms that tend to be a little narrow. And this is what um, military forces usually worldwide tend to wear. There's a reason for that because it tends to be, the the metal tends to be silver or gold and it's more malleable. And so you can actually bend these frames a little bit and they tend to be a little bit thinner so that they, they have less chance to Provide. I mean, the problem here is twofold. It can cause a hot spot there where the ear cup is pushing against the, the arm of the, the spectacle into the side of your temple, and that hurts. And as well, the, the, the spectacle arm can open up the, the side of the ear cup there and allow ambient noise to enter. So it's kind of a twofold problem there you're trying to address. I would try a couple of different ear seals on the ear cup. Use your, your basic plastic ear cup but maybe replace the air seals and try a variety of those. There's some out there that uh, are obviously better than others. Uh, and there's even gel air cups out there that, that work pretty well, although you know, they, they, it's a matter of personal preference there. Um, I know one crew member when I was in the military, what he had done to his, his military spectacles and arms, he'd actually glued some uh, like a comfort foam to the edge of the spectacles there so that on the inside, so it didn't give him a pressure point. And he, he, he adjusted the ear cups to bring him down. So he had a decent ear seal. But again, that's he, that's more of an exception than you know a, a normal way of operating, but it, it did work for him. So um, it, like I say, it, that continues to be an area where we need to work and find a better way, all, all, all the helmet manufacturers, I think. Yeah, at least he's put up with it, but um... Yeah, after a long day, you could feel it pushing the side of the head there, oh, yeah. and you you would get sort of get a bit more noise through. But it was either that or not fly, so I just <laughs> sucked it up. Yeah, yeah, I wear them too, and it's a pain. It's a real pain. With you guys, have got their own personal helmet, um, and and looking after it. You know, how do you sort of service it yourself? What do you need to do to look after the helmet and get the, the longest life out of it? Oh, the most life out of it. Well. I've seen some helmets out there, um, some Gentex helmets out there that are 14, 15, 16 years old, and they look terrific. And I'm sure they provide probably 90 or 95 percent of the of, of the protection that they uh, originally were built with. I mean, because they've been well maintained, they've had regular maintenance on them. Some of the things, you know, you know, you, you want to change on them. You know, we, we we tend to sweat a lot when you're flying, especially on a on a, on a hot day. And so the sweat works its way not just into the comfort liner, but also into things like the chin strap or the or the helmet retention. And the sweats have got oils and salts in them that, over time, they can corrode some of the metal fittings. It can also weaken the the nylon or Kevlar that's used in the retention. So you want to keep those things clean if at all possible. You know, you wipe them down afterwards. A little isopropyl alcohol. Rubbing alcohol that you can get a chip at, at the local market works works just fine for cleaning out. A little soap and water, mild soap, no bleach, 
um, and to, to take care of these inside what you'd call hygienic components, keep those things in decent shape. For the visors themselves, you can clean visors with a little bit of water, and, and what I like to use is a chamois, um, like, you know, get a decent chamois like you'd use to wipe your car off. That works very well for, for cleaning the lenses, the visor lenses, and preventing scratches. Um, you can also use a little bit of rubbing alcohol on that on the, the visors themselves to cut any oil or smudges that might be on there, and that, it won't harm the visors at all. However, I definitely avoid any window cleaning products that have ammonia in them. Um, most visor manufacturers apply an anti-scratch coating to the visors, and this will deteriorate that coating and eventually start flaking off, and it'll look terrible, and it'll it'll, it'll mess up your uh, your visual acuity for sure. Okay, scratches and and sort of little superficial you know marks on the outside of the helmet, do they affect the like the integrity, or that you know is it just sort of uh, cosmetic, or is there a certain level where it actually starts to impact on you know the like, a, yeah. like an eggshell? Sure, we seal the helmets pretty well here when they're initially molded, and of course, um, uh, you know I uh, I know Hissel operates the same way as well. Then they apply a, a primer to the to the materials, and then after that comes the paint itself. So if it just scratches in the outer helmet uh, paint, that's usually fine, if, even down into the primer. If you've got a nick or a chip or if it's it's been dropped from, say, four or five feet onto the tarmac and you've got a nice ding in it, now that's more serious. Uh, I would look at that one very carefully. If it's showing the what we call the substrate, the material underneath the primer, that needs to be addressed right away. Um, first off, I'd maybe disassemble the helmet and I'd take it outside on a nice sunny day and hold it up and see if I can see any damage to it. Maybe there's some cracks or lines extending out from the from the impact point, and that would tell me whether or not the shell was severely damaged. If you don't see any of those, the shell is probably okay, but you should touch up the, the primer and the paint immediately because you don't want to let that get exposed to ozone, UV, POL, petroleum oil lubricants, anything like that. And just general care on the outer helmet shelf, uh, shell itself is uh, I don't use any, or I don't recommend anyone use any uh, uh, car waxes that have uh, like a, um, petroleum distillates in it. What, what works well is a plain wax, like a carnauba wax, works very well, keep the solar protection factor up, put a nice shine on the helmet, and it won't deteriorate the shell or the paint. Okay, that's interesting. What about, uh, you know, you obviously try not to get fuel in your hands and things like that, but there's sometimes, you know, you get fuel splashed and things like that. Should you, you know, go out of your way not to get that sort of um, contact then on, on top of you, on the skin of the um, The helmets are pretty good in that regard. The paint um, is a polyurethane. It's very high quality. It's an automotive um, high quality polyurethane that we paint all of our helmets with. Um, and that's pretty resistant. Um, uh, JP4, JP8, anything of that nature. I, I don't think you'll have a problem with that at all. Most oils, I would be more concerned that if, if it splashes there, it may get onto other things that are not as resistant. It could, you know, if it gets on there, it could be onto like the retention, the chin strap, the soft goods of the helmet. Maybe it could get onto the visor and affect the, you know, the the, uh, the, the coating, anti-scratch coating on the visor. But the shell itself and, and even the polycarbonate uh, outer housing, they're actually pretty resistant to, to jet fuel. I'm, it's just, just not let them take a bath in it, though, and I think you'll be fine. 
No dramas. Uh, Mark, can you talk about uh, this range of costs? And is there warranties that come with the helmets as a sort of generic top thing across the industry? Sure. Um, most everyone, and, and including Gentex, um, we offer a, um, you know, basically an unconditional one-year warranty on manufacture uh, of the parts. If you got a defect in it, um, I'm, uh, we're happy to replace that, uh, especially due to material or assembly, something of that nature. And, and our distributors, they um, we usually go out of the way, um, and they, they, they extend the warranty usually to about two years on our parts and uh, the way it's assembled. So that's pretty decent, and, and I'd rather rather keep a good customer um, than argue with them about you know you know forty dollar visor or something like that. So we we go the extra mile to keep the customers happy. And price range, what's the entry level, and um, yeah, I guess top of the range? I know there is a a range of options, or how does it work? You mean for uh, for uh, features of the helmet or for the cost? Yeah, I guess cost. So if if you're starting it today and you just got your helicopter license and you're heading off to your first job and uh, you decide, okay, I'm going to invest oh, in the helmet. It'll yeah, it'll vary uh, obviously depending on the features of the helmet, the type of the helmet, um, and 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 where you're located, the market especially. And I can I can speak in the United States here. You can you probably find a, a new um, helicopter helmet, uh, maybe an older design, but you know still basically current for you know, probably in the $900 range, $800 range with some um, standard comms in them. Um, and I would say that could easily go up to double that 1800 to 2000 for, um, you know, one of our HU 5060 helmets with, uh, you know, a lot of bells and whistles on it, you know, probably, um, communications, earplugs, coiled cord, um, noise canceling mics, um, night vision goggle mount, uh, what else? Yeah, probably a couple other features on there. So, yeah, I mean, there's, it's a pretty broad range. And, of course, it, there's also used helmets that are out there, and you just need to be careful as you choose those as well. Yeah, actually, quite often you'll see, you know, a helmet come up on a helicopter forum and things like that. Is there, sure. you know, from a, you know, not, well, not sure, a lay person, but from a, an average helicopter pilot picking up a helmet to try and look at it and who doesn't have a life support background, is there the key failure points in the helmet that sort of fatigue that you should be looking at if you can find out how old it is that, that might be a good a good start yeah if, if you don't have a uh, life sport or an lc background it can be it can be uh, risky if you can see it in your hand i would definitely look at the helmet shell for cracks as i mentioned earlier you take them outside on a nice sunny day and hold it up to the sun Look at the attachment points for where the chin strap, a nape strap, where the retention itself fits into the helmet. Look for any cracks or little lines radiusing out from that point. Check the shell and see if it's if it's got nicks on it. You have substantial nicks and dings in the paint that might indicate where it was dropped and then touched up later. Let's see what else. Look at I'd look at that retention on the inside, the cloth or or nylon. Kevlar, whatever the material that is used inside there, on it. I look at that and see if it is, does it look like it's um, sweaty, you know, it corroded maybe due to the sweat and salts and that on on some of the metal fittings. That might indicate that it's been worn a lot and has and has not had you know regular maintenance on it, or the person didn't care to to clean it up afterwards. And and now that they're selling it that way, um, those are probably two things right off that you know I would kind of look for the shell and then that retention because those can actually be fairly costly to replace. 
Right at the top of the interview, you spoke about like the active noise cancelling. Is there a couple of you know recent developments that have in the last couple of years have sort of been coming on the market, or things that are about to come on the market that you can talk about? Sure. Well, active noise reduction. If your listeners are actually their, their owner operators, I mean they they should consider this and and run it under aircraft power. And that way, you get a, a nice continuous uh, uh, voltage going through the system. A and R can be pricey, but I, I mean it'll offer easily 10 to 15 decibel noise reduction, which is very significant. And if you can't wire it to operate off the aircraft, then uh, next best thing is a, a battery-operated system. I've seen some of these A and R systems that work quite well for you know, in the $400 range, which uh, is not bad at all. Okay, especially for that amount of protection. I don't know if they're aftermarket kits or not, but I'm sure I've read of people sort of um, adding CEP to their, their own helmets after the after the fact. You know, if you start drilling through your helmet and adding things like that, uh, I don't know, is, is it the OEM sort of thing they just don't do it or is there is there ways to do it and ways not to do it? We do some A&R right now. Uh, um, you know, we, we are working on next generation A&R uh, systems. Um, but I don't have anything to field right at the moment. Um, but you are right. Yeah, you, it does require some some drilling. Usually, it's it's um, if there's modifications that's done to the ear cup where you're going to install an ANR module in the ear cup. So that's that's a little less dicey than if you're trying to drill a hole in the side of the helmet shell. Usually, usually the the comms leads will come out of the, an existing hole that's already in the helmet. But I say there, there's something to be said that I say it, it will offer you substantial dB uh, reduction. There's also CEP communications earplug, which is out on the market. There's a couple um, different styles and types of that. That's uh, that's a pretty good product as well. Doesn't require quite the, the modification to the helmets, and, and those easily can give you know five to seven decibel reduction. And again, that's um, it may not sound like a lot, but that's actually fairly significant. Yeah, I found them really useful. Again, you know, going from the Alpha where there's none of that then to the 56 and having the CEP, you know, the, the radio comms and things like that, it made a, a massive difference. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, we're, we're working something within Gentex, uh, but I, I can't, I'm not at liberty to discuss it much on, on CEP, but uh, watch for it uh, late this year or early next. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Mark, is there, is there things I haven't asked that uh, you know that you think air crew should know about or consider for helmets? Well, I would definitely always <laughs> recommend always always wear it and make sure it's it is fitted properly. Too often, I've had complaints from folks that they they got a helmet and they took it right out of the box and put it on their head and they, you know you know but it just doesn't work for me. You know, it's rare that you can pull a helmet out of a box and put it on your head and it'd be comfortable. It requires some sort of fitting uh, and adjustment. So, you know, make sure you, you you got the right size to start with and then make sure that you look at the, the user manual for it very carefully. If you're like me, that's probably the first thing you toss in the bin. But uh, um, really, there's usually some good information on there. And if and if you're in doubt, uh, contact the helmet manufacturer. You know, they, we, they all employ folks like myself that are willing to help you ensure that it gets a nice comfortable and a stable fit you want that thing to stay on your head uh, um, in all cases and the more stable it is better it's going to be for your your neck and your shoulder muscles in the long run um, it's also going to help make ensure that you have hearing to be able to hear your grandkids one day <laughs> fair enough 
Look, Mark, thank you so much. It's a a heap of info. And uh, again, being able to, you know, go straight to the source and uh, and tap your knowledge on that, that's really appreciated. Oh, I'm glad glad to help you out, Matt, then. And uh, watch for things in the future as well. Um, Not just from Gentex, but I think all the helmet manufacturers. Um, Me, I see we're going to have greatly increased wireless capability in the helmets. Okay. And I think you're going to see some lighter weight with newer composite materials. And I think we're going to see some advances on uh, improved comfort for sure. Because that, that's that's one thing there. If, you, if you're just not comfortable wearing it, you're not going to wear it. Exciting times. Yeah, but, uh, and again, your listeners are welcome to contact me. Uh, they can email me directly through uh, gentextcorp.com. And, and if they're looking for a, a resource, um, I can also recommend uh, they check check out the U.S. Army Aviation Aeromed Research Lab. They've got some interesting historical stuff on their website as well. And it kind of, kind of talks about uh, you know the safety and the importance of wearing a, a helmet in the first place. All right, I might track that page down and I'll include the link in the uh, in the show notes for the episode so folks can follow that there too. All right. And if there's anything else I can help with, I'm always here. Glad to help you out, sir. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Okay, good talking to you. Mark, we were just talking after the interview there and you started uh, talking about uh, uh, insurance and guys going back to their insurance company about helmets. Can you just cover that again? Yeah, we're starting to see um, a little trend up here in, in the States that, um, you know, f- folks like Flight for Life or medical operations and that, uh, and even even some individuals like crop dusters and that, they, uh, um, if they're wearing a helmet now, they, they approach their um, insurance uh, company and say, hey, I'm, I'm wearing this. Is there a way I can get a, a discount uh, on my, my flight insurance? And so we're seeing some progress there finally. So um, I think that's going to be a trend. Uh, it may or may not apply to in, in all countries, but we're certainly seeing uh, the start of that up here in the U.S. Um, so, again, it helps offset the cost of um, ownership for a helmet. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. I'll include links to the Gentex website in the U.S. Army Aeromedical Research Lab website that Mark mentions in the episode show notes on the website. I've also found a really good doco on YouTube that goes for about 16 minutes and covers the U.S. Army helicopter helmet developmental arc and the backstory for that. So you can watch that over at rotarywingshow.com under episode 23. If we didn't cover a question that you have on helmets or you have anything to add from your own experiences, then jump into the comments section on the blog and we can all continue the conversation there. And look, I do read all the comments and do reply to them. Uh, so you can definitely check that out on the bottom of the blog post for this episode and also all the uh, previous episodes. As I said at the top of the show, there'll be Gentex reps and I'm sure other helmet companies there too at Heli Expo. So see if you can track them down there to follow up on anything you've heard in this episode. This episode has been sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. If you want more students, less paperwork, and to grow your flight school profits, then definitely check out the resources over at trainmorepilots.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you think we've earned it, then a share on social media is always super appreciated and helps more people get to hear and know about the show. That's a wrap for this episode. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. 